Isaiah 9, 1 to 7. But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shine. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this reading of your holy and sacred word. Father, we look to you now that, Father, you would nourish our souls from it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I might as well give away the title of the sermon right from the start. I think it's uh, To Us the Son is Given, Part 1. Uh, we're not going to make it through all this this morning. Uh, there's, there's quite a bit there. And rather than just running to verse 6 and expounding verse 6, I've chosen to do what we did with Isaiah 7, is to look at the real context of, of these verses. They don't take place in a vacuum. And uh, uh, we'll, we'll have to uh, do a little work, roll our sleeves up, uh, to see um, the context here. I've subtitled it, A Great Light, Joy, and Deliverance. Uh, so the title's To Us a Son is Given, Part 1. Subtitle, A Great Light, Joy, uh, and Deliverance. Uh, I, I think this passage takes us to one of the greatest heights that we can actually summon in this life. I really do think that this passage really is a preparation for heaven. Uh, the more I study it and the more familiar I, I come with it, the, 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 the more solid is that conviction. And it's, it's a great beacon of light. It, 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 and one of the reasons it's such a great beacon of light is because it shines into one of the darkest passages. And I don't know how familiar you are with the context of this, but it's, you know, Isaiah, uh, throughout Isaiah's prophecy, he's proclaiming judgment. But it isn't judgment all the way through. He vacillates back and forth between judgment and grace. And he sounds forth these great promises of grace. And here we come to uh, we come to uh, this particular passage between uh, chapter seven and, and chapters 10. We have this great chapter nine that follows uh, the tail end of chapter seven and all of chapter eight, which gets very, very dark. And here is this great beacon of light and it making it even more stupendous is the fact that it raises us up out of this very low valley and to see this we we have to go to the valley 
We have to go to Isaiah's valley. But as we go to Isaiah's valley, we're going to come forth from there learning a lot more about Ohio's valley. Uh, Spending time in Isaiah's valley teaches us a lot about Ohio's valley. In chapter 7, last time we saw, we wept as as Ahaz makes his fatal decision uh, to trust in in the king uh, of Assyria instead of the Lord. You might recall that if you heard that last time. And even more heartbreaking is the fact that uh, Israel is is in alliance with Syria. And what are they up to? Well, they're going down in the south and into Jerusalem and their intentions are to uh, destroy uh, King Ahaz. Their intentions are to destroy uh, the king of Jerusalem. Now, um, if you're familiar with, with the history of Israel, this makes sense to you. If you're not familiar with the history of Israel, this doesn't make any sense. Uh, so allow me to take a few moments and kind of sketch in some of the necessary details. I mean, Israel, as some of you will recall, becomes a world superpower under King David, doesn't it? I mean, a world superpower. Uh, and um, you'll recall in Second Samuel 7, the Lord promises to uh, David that one of his sons will reign on his throne forever. We studied that passage, and I make reference to that passage often. We refer to it as the, as the um, covenant that God makes with David. One of your sons is going to reign on your throne, and he will reign forever. And of course, that son is the Lord Jesus Christ, isn't it? And what this does, there's tremendous significance here. I mean, the king of Jerusalem is the Lord's anointed. The king of Jerusalem is the Lord's anointed. David is what we call a type of Christ. He's a type of Christ. And in other words, David, he typifies or foreshadows the true king, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And of course, the house of David, as I said last week, are the people of God, right? Um, Now, before David dies, the kingship is passed on to his son Solomon, correct? He's the next Solomon. And although the threads of disintegration are truly present in David's reign, especially if you look at the end of 2 Samuel, you'll see that there are threads of disintegration in the kingdom, even under David. It certainly becomes more prominent under Solomon, doesn't it? But yet, the Davidic reigns and the, and the reign of Solomon, uh, these, are, these are the heyday. This is the, this is the heyday of Israel in terms of its political strength and, and its, its world dominance. But the seeds of decay, they begin to spring into weeds of division. Solomon passes the kingdom to his son Rehoboam, and Rehoboam blows it, doesn't he? He, he couldn't have blown it even more, I don't think. I mean, if he would have tried to design a way to blow it, don't, I think he would have failed. Uh, he, he blows it right from the beginning. In fact, the very first thing that he does is blows it. Uh, so bad that 10 of the 12 tribes pick up their toys and they go north, don't they? And the whole thing's divided in half. It's, at this point, it's, it's divided between the house, of the house of Israel in the north and the house of David in the south. Now, 200 years go, goes by. And that takes us to the time frame here that we are in Isaiah, about 200 years after that division. And we learn from Isaiah 7 that Ahaz is reigning in the south and King David's uh, throne and Pekah is reigning in the north uh, over the house of Israel. And Assyria is a country that's growing in strength. 
Uh, they're rising in power and they're running around conquering everything that's in front of them. And of course, this creates a lot of fear with Israel and Syria. So they decide to get together and band together and stand up to Assyria. And they call Ahaz up and they say, Ahaz, you in? You're going to join us. And Ahaz says, no, I'm not in. And this ticks them off. And that's when they decide, okay, well, we're going to come in. We're going to destroy you. And we're going to set up a king in your place who is in. And that's, that's the, that, 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 these are the, the tensions that are taking place here. Now, are you ready for this one? Okay, Ahaz, as we saw last week, is a really wicked character, isn't he? I mean, he's a very wicked character. He once offered his oldest son uh, as a sacrifice in the fires to Molech. This is a wicked character. Uh, but that having been said, he's the Lord's anointed. Yeah. When you hear that for the first time, you say, whoa, wait a second. He's a wicked character. And he's the Lord's anointed. Yes. And we say in our minds, well, wait a second. If he's the Lord's anointed, he should be a righteous character. Yes. That's the problem. Uh, That's what God's about to deal with. This is a serious problem. And we might even make application right here, right now. Sometimes you'll hear preachers talk about God's infinite mercy. Have you ever heard that? God's mercy is infinite. It knows no ends. Has anybody ever heard that? When you hear that, that should raise a flag. God is infinite, but his mercy is not infinite. God nowhere promises infinite mercy. Nowhere. There would never be any judgment. There'd be no judgment. What's going on here is God's God is patient. Let's be thankful for that. God is long suffering. Let's be thankful for that. But he's never promised infinite mercy and we should never presume upon his patience because there'll come a day when God will judge the guilty. And that is exactly where Israel finds herself right here and right now. Israel is attempting to go into Jerusalem and execute the Lord's anointed and set up their own king in its place, in his place. This is an assault against the Lord himself, isn't it? And uh, Israel and Judah, I mean, they they should both be united in prayer together. Praying for the Lord to protect them from Assyria. But that's not what they're doing. And I might even add, increasing the responsibility and culpability of all of this, there's only been one nation in the entire history of the world that God has called to himself as his own chosen nation, and that is Israel. And what are they doing? They're making alliances with, with foreign nations uh, in order to protect themselves. This is completely faithless and it's completely godness. It's godless. They've forsaken the Lord to trust in the things of this world. And except for a small remnant, Israel and Judah have committed wholesale abandonment against the Lord. And he's about to judge them. He's about to judge them. And that's what chapter 8 all about. It really, in essence, that's what chapter 8 of Isaiah is about. Now, with this background in mind, look at verse 1 of our text, Isaiah 9 and verse 1. It reads, there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. You see that there? Now, for perhaps the first question that comes to mind here is, okay, who is the one who is in anguish? Well, the, the verse answers the question. It's the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. Okay, what in the world is that? You know, if it said, well, the land of Beaver Falls and Chippewa, okay, we got that. The land of Zebulun and Naphtali, what is this? Some of you have maps in the back of your Bibles. 
don't know if you ever go back there and look around, but uh, I see a couple of Bibles floating about that would have a map. Emily's got one back there, would have maps in the back. And you don't need to turn there now, but I'm guessing that of one of those maps back there, there's going to be a map, and at the top it'll say the 12 tribes of Israel. And if you look, it'll be a, a map of the Holy Land, and it'll have the 12 tribes of Israel listed all around. Um, if you look at the very northern part of the Holy Land, you'll see Naphtali at the very top, and just under it, you'll see Zebulun, and you'll see Asher just to the west. It borders the Mediterranean Sea, and Naphtali and Zebulun are right along the uh, Sea of Galilee. So these are the, the northern tribes, if you will. Um, this is, you know, when, when God led Israel into the Holy Land, these regions get their names because these are the locations where each tribe receives their inheritance. Uh, Naphtali receives its inheritance uh, all the way up in the north. Zebulun, just a little bit south of Naphtali, and Asher, uh, just to the west. And incidentally, the prophetess that we read about in our opening passage, Anna, uh, you'll notice that Luke records the fact that Anna came from Asher. I don't know if you've ever caught that detail or not. Uh, maybe we'll get time to look at that this morning. Uh, it's it's a significant detail. Uh, so what's what's the scoop here? Well, God is about to judge Israel, and he's going to do it using a paddle called Assyria. And Assyria, when they come down the, uh, from the north, what regions are they going to enter into first? It's going to be Naphtali, and it's going to be Zebulun, and uh, they're the first to be conquered, and if you know anything about history at all in this region, um, Assyria was bad news. They were bad news. Um, they didn't just do what they had to do. There's no Geneva Convention here. They didn't just do what they had to do. I mean, they, they took a lot of delight in really, uh, really, I mean, they did things I'm not going to mention. I certainly wouldn't mention on Christmas morning. So they were fierce and they were cruel. And they did things that I don't even want to describe. But after Assyria conquers Israel, 2 Kings 17.24 tells us that the king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Cuthah, Ava, Hamath, and Sepharvium, and placed them in cities of Samaria instead of the people of Israel. And they took possession of Samaria and lived in its cities. Now, what's that all about? What's well, a reversal of the conquest? It's a reversal, you know. God had promised Israel to, to give them a land, to take them into the promised land. And during the conquest, God brings Israel into the land and, and uh, he displaces the former inhabitants, doesn't he? And Israel begins to occupy the land. Well, now Israel has apostatized from God and what's God doing? Pitching them out. He's resettling the land. And, he's, and, and, and through Assyria, foreign people are being brought into the the promised land. If you look at the very end of Isaiah 9.1, you see that little phrase, Galilee of the nations? Some of your translations might say, Galilee of the Gentiles. That's what that's making reference to. So who was in anguish? Uh, back to verse 1. Uh, there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. Who's in anguish? The ten northern tribes of Israel, here represented by the, the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali, who really took the brunt of the devastation. Now, uh, look with me again to this phrase here in Isaiah 9.1. There will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. 
Notice the tense that Isaiah is using there. See the word was. There will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. Isaiah is looking far into the future. And he he is talking as if these things have already taken place in the past, isn't he? Um, He is so certain that this gloom that's being described here is going to depart, that he is speaking in a way as if it has already happened. Uh, You see that there? He's speaking about future events as if they've already taken place. Now, uh, before we're going to get anything out of this verse, and and some of you are looking like, okay, how much further are we going to go until we get to something I recognize? Well, we're on our way. Okay, hang in there. Now, before we get anything out of this verse, we're going to have to we're going to have to understand this gloom. What is this gloom? What does this gloom involve? Um, to to figure that out, there's three things that are important, aren't there? What are they? Yeah, I was waiting for Emily to rattle them off back there. Context, context, and context. If you look back to Isaiah eight, verses eleven to twelve, Isaiah is speaking to the faithful remnant. Okay, within all of this apostasy, there's still God always keeps a remnant. They're all always um, true. There's still a small band of true believers in the bunch. And Isaiah is speaking to them in verses 11 and 12. For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy and do not fear what they fear nor be in dread. How many have read that verse before? And if you have, and you're like me, when you get to verse 12, you think, well, conspiracy, what? You do this and you think, what is that all about? Uh, Well, the people have lost their way. They're no longer trusting in the Lord. And this is leading them to trust in almost anything. John Wesley once said, if a man will not believe God, he will believe anything. If a man will not believe God, he will believe anything. And Isaiah is saying to the faithful, do not follow after them. Don't fear what they fear. Don't be afraid of of Assyria. I'm going to take care of you. And Isaiah says, do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy. Now, there's been a lot of ink spilled on that on that verse, but I want to offer two things here about that. Uh, And and the first insight comes from Malik Matir. I brought him up last week. Um, I gained this insight from him. He says the people of faith here are being warned not to trust and the supposed safety of political alliances and political figures. I think he's spot on because that's what's going on, isn't it? Nobody's trusting in the Lord. Uh, Syria and Israel are getting together, trying to get Judah together to fight Assyria. Where's the Lord in this? And of course, Assyria, Assyria's got their own heathen gods that they're following. I mean, this is godless. Um, Israel's entrusting in their attempted alliance with Syria. Judah is trusting in his deal uh, that he has made with with uh, Assyria, and both are going to fail. Now let's make application here, you know. And I I want to be careful with this application too. If I want to stay with the start, which I often say when I'm making these kind of applications, is I'm not trying to be political here. Okay, I'm not being political with this. This application would apply whether there were Republicans in office or Democrats in office. Um, we're in grave danger when we put our faith in political leaders. In fact, if we look to our political leaders, if we look to them alone to get us out of our mess, we commit the same exact idolatry that's being committed here. 
It's the same thing. And um, one of the greatest dangers that I think we're in right now, one of the greatest challenges that we have right now is uh, success. And again, I want to be careful. I don't want anyone to leave here and think, well, Rick doesn't, want, Rick doesn't want the new administration to be successful. No, that's not what I'm saying. I, I want the new administration to be successful. I'm, I want the new administration to be successful, providing the agendas are good. Okay? But what the danger is, suppose the new administration is highly successful. It's going to intensify the tendency to put our faith and our trust in political leaders. Do you see the point I'm trying to make? If things get good, it's going to be from God's hand. He uses people to do this. But let's not stop. In, when we gaze upon the political figure, let's not stop there. Let's look back behind uh, the political figure and see the very hand of God blessing us. That's the point I'm trying to make. Does that make sense? And secondly, the second insight comes from a scholar named John Oswald. He writes, quote, How easy it is when situations go against us to become paranoid and react accordingly. Isaiah challenges his people to reject paranoia and see God's hand in the events of their time. To refuse to do so is to become more and more fearful. More and more unstable. For it means that our lives are ultimately in the hands of unknown powers, too devious for us to know or control, and this in turn leads us toward the occult in an effort to gain control over these unknown and devious powers. I think Oswald is spot on here. So what he's saying is as we turn away from God, as we turn away from him, what are we going to look to when tragedy comes? We're going to have a tendency to look to occultism. If you look at verse 19, uh, Isaiah 8, verse 19, uh, there we see the people have turned to see the, the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter. You see that? In Isaiah 8, verse 19, they're turning to psychics and mediums and various other occultism practices of the day. And this is the drift that, that Oswald is talking about, and it's easy to make application here. I mean, the United States is not Israel, okay? but the spiritual principles apply. When we turn away from God, we lose stability. We become anxious. Uh, we turn to superstition and occult, and we see this going on everywhere. Think about all the television shows that are on right now that feature occultism. You know, having, you know, I mean, no, no disrespect here, but having just done three funerals in the last three weeks, a little better than three weeks, I've heard all kinds of things that were occultic as I mingled with people that were hurting. All kinds of stuff. Um, that's where we are. See, the more we learn about a, Isaiah's Valley, the more we learn about, the more we learn about Ohio's Valley. Um, Isaiah concludes, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? To the teaching and to the testimony. If they will not speak according to this Word, it's because they have no dawn. That's Isaiah 8, verses 19 and 20. So Isaiah is revealing the absurdity of this. He's, people are going to psychics and mediums instead of the Bible. And uh, what is the reason for this? Uh, why are they avoiding the Bible? People avoid the Bible because they have no dawn. And that's what we're about to talk about. That's why people avoid the Bible, because they don't have no dawn. 
Isaiah is making that really clear. And what is the result? How do people, what, what is the end result when we go down this trail? Look at verses 21 and 22. Isaiah 8, 21 and 22. They will pass through the land, greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. What is this all about? It's all about bitter, bitterness, anger, and resentment. That's what's going on everywhere in Isaiah's valley. Uh, What goes on in Ohio's valley? Interestingly enough, everywhere is bitterness, anger, and resentment. Now, um, knowing something about the gloom of anguish. Let's move on. Look, look again to Isaiah 9 and verse 1. There will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. We can ask a really simple question. What is the answer to, uh, to the gloom and the anguish in Isaiah's valley. It's in verse 6. And let's ask the same question. What is the answer to the gloom and the anguish that's in Ohio's valley? And the answer is in verse 6. The answer is a child. A child. Not the answer, I think, that we would expect, is it? Say a child. Yeah, the answer is a child. For to us, a child is born. The answer is a son. To us, a son is given. Here we, we stand at the very bottom of the valley, don't we? And we look up, you know. You don't realize how tall the Washington Monument is until you stand at the foot of it. You know, recently, Tammy and I had the privilege of doing that and you know, you see the thing. I mean, you can see it from forever. And it doesn't really look that like that big of a deal as you're walking towards it. But the closer you get, uh, the taller it appears until you're standing right at the very bottom of it. You're looking straight up. My goodness. Here we are at the very bottom of this very dark valley. And we look up. And what do we see? We see verse 6. For to us a child is born... To us, a son is given. And we all know what that means, don't we? God himself steps into time, space, and history. And what does he do? He walks into the gloom and the anguish and the darkness. Matthew tells us that Jesus fulfills this ancient prophecy. In Matthew four twelve verse 16, Now when Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of what? This is 700 years later, into the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. So what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light and for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light is dawn. What is the answer of this anguish? We all know the answer. It's the intrusion of God, isn't it? And I've chosen that word really carefully, the intrusion of God. 
It's God actually intruding into our lives, intruding in the person of of Jesus Christ. Look at verse two. The people who walked in darkness have what? They've seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness on them, a light has what? It is shine. I mean, the people are walking in darkness. That means they're walking in, in, in sin and unbelief. And God intrudes. He intrudes by shining his light down into the darkness. And this is what the Apostle Paul's talking about in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6, when he says, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. This is conversion. Conversion is a result of what God does. I mean, we're in darkness prior to this. And we're in such darkness that we don't even realize we're in darkness. And then God shines his light. And it's only God's light that can remove this darkness. I want to give you some encouragement. You know, Titus 6.16 says that God dwells in an approachable light. And God reveals that light through the gospel, doesn't he? Through the gospel message. That's why I've been passing those sermons out all over the place, you know. When Tammy and I were on vacation, I said to her, I said, when we get back, I want to get really aggressive with this. I think it's time that we get really aggressive with this. I'm going to write these things out and try to pass these things out to everyone that I can pass these things out to. And um, I've been at it long enough now that I'm, I'm certainly being mocked. I'm certainly being made fun of. There's no question about that. But you know what else is happening? We're getting Facebook messages from people. We got one yesterday. There's a, a woman who... Uh, receiving one of these little talks in the mail, sent us a message that she wants to laminate it. They come from really surprising places. What's going on? You see, God walks in this darkness. That's where he meets us, isn't it? In this darkness. And he shines that light into our hearts. And it's only then, it's only then that we cry out to Him. Because without that light, we are not going to do that. And I say this to encourage you, God's still in the business of shining that light. If you look at verse 3, and as we think about some of these notes we're getting, our hearts are filled with joy. Look at verse 3. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its what? It's joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. This is the joy of Christmas. It doesn't make sense unless we look at the gloom. It doesn't. God shining light into darkness through His Son, Jesus Christ. You know, in my outline here, I have joy as a distinct category, but it's artificial. We can't really put joy in a distinct category. We can't separate it because, you know, when God does his business of shining light, that creates joy. 
when he delivers us from oppression, that it creates joy. When he delivers us from war, when he delivers us from all of the things that we're delivered to, it all creates joy. Joy permeates the whole thing. It's kind of an artificial category. I mean, look at verses four to uh, uh, verses four. We'll get to maybe the beginning of verse six and we'll stop. But you look at verses four and five and the beginning of six. You see what I'm talking about. Uh, here, here we see deliverance from oppression. Look at verse four. For the yoke of his burden and the stra- staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. And then deliverance from war, verse five. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. And then uh, we see great deliverance because there's a new government. Verse six. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And what? The government shall be on his shoulder. You know, when Jesus begins his earthly ministry, you know, first thing he says is the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. There's a new government. We got this new government. And he says, repent and believe. And as we do that, God sets his throne up in our hearts, doesn't he? Some of you will like this. Catechism question 26, which we studied a while back, asks, how does Christ execute the office of a king? Christ executes the office of a king in subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. You guys remember that, don't you? See in the hands, Bob. Yes. Like those bobbleheads. It's cool. Um, (laughs) It is cool. Come up here and see. You'll see. It's very cool. Um, Jesus has conquered the great enemy of souls, Satan himself. But he has to conquer another enemy. Who is that? It's you and it's me. He conquers Satan at the cross. He conquers us as he wins our hearts with the gospel, doesn't he? Doesn't he? The addict is delivered from his addiction, the thief from his guilt, the gossip from their slander, the gambling from their the gambler from their gambling, and down the list goes, doesn't it? And all of this fills us with joy. This is the true joy of Christmas. You know, it's God intruding in the darkness. God intruding in the darkness. Amen. Okay. I'll wrap it up. No more bobblehead jokes. Sorry. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you, Father, for this great light that is is shown in our hearts. Father, where would we be if you had chosen to pass us over if you had not shown that light in our hearts. But, oh, Father, we thank you that you have been pleased to do that, Father. And um, at the start, we didn't have any idea what was happening to us. But as that light shone in our hearts and you quickly became more than a concept to us, you became real alive, reigning, doing things. Once we had to do everything for you, but as your light shone in our hearts, suddenly you're doing everything for us, lifting us out of the gloom and the darkness, bringing us into the light, light that's unapproachable. 
and bringing us in touch with true reality. Father, we were so out of touch with true reality as we were looking to the world love in love with money, in love with homes, in love with all these things that are passing. But then your light came and your light shone. And you sh- you've revealed something greater for us to love. And we do desire to love you, Father, because you have shown such great love to us. And oh, Father, we understand this is the joy of Christmas. This is really, truly the joy of Christmas. Being brought into the light, being brought into the realm of glory, being washed and cleansed of our sins and wrapped with the righteousness of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's only because of him that we can stand here and say these things. Well, Father, we pray that you would you would receive our 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 offering of thanksgiving, of singing, of praising, of meditating upon these things, Father. That you would receive those as a, as a thanksgiving offering for what you've done for us. And Father, we ask that you would cause that great light to shine in the hearts of our neighbors and our loved ones and people of this valley. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.